Well, everybody take a deep breath. Take one more, just breathe. Uh, I know it's a, it's, it's a busy time of year, and uh, I know you left stuff undone to get here this morning, and there are things to be done when you go home, and this week is, it may not have a lot of silence or a lot of peace in some ways, even though we know what it means, and so I just want us to be here. There's nowhere else to be right now, is there, than right now, and <clears throat> me with you under God's word. Let's give his word our, our full attention in these moments. But you may not be familiar with the name Ernest Lawrence Taylor, but you are probably familiar with a poem he wrote back in 1888. It was first published in the San Francisco Examiner on June 3rd, 1888. Since that time, it has been translated. It's been in shows and movies and theater and all kinds of crazy things. And uh, it, through the years, it, it's just embedded in, in American literature per se, but I would say embedded in our cultural psyche such, such that there's a line or two, I'm going to grab one, that, that's become you know, an American idiom for us. And you know, if you're like me, an idiot, I always have to look up idiom, so I should have known that. You know? But you know, idioms, when you say something you say something that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but everyone knows what you mean when you say it. It's raining cats and dogs. <laughs> you say that to someone in Peru, they have no idea, but say it to us. And it, Cats and dogs have nothing to do with rain, but what do you know I'm saying? What am I saying when I say that? You know exactly what I'm saying. It's raining really, really hard. Well, there's an idiom in this poem that I think will help us in our topic of the day. Uh, the home team, Mudville. They are down by two runs, and it's the bottom of the ninth. Everyone's lost hope, but there's a glimmer because the whole st- all the home field, all the st- fans believe, if one person can get to bat, I think we can win it. Who's the one person they hope gets to bat? Mighty Casey. Let's hope Casey gets to bat. Here's the problem. Casey's got four batters in front of him. And the first two, out number one, out number two. And then the next two batters, Blake and Flynn, the poem goes on to say they're no good. He calls them Lulus or something. You know, they're, just, they're, they're, they're not going to do it. And so everyone's thinking Casey is not going to make the bat. Lo and behold, what? They get on base. And so, you know, one's on second and one's on third. And in that moment, all hope begins to rise again. The poem reads, Then from 5,000 throats and more there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley, it rattled in the dell. It knocked upon the mountain and recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. Now, if you recall the poem, you know that Casey thinks a lot of himself. And you wouldn't even call it confidence or cockiness, but... Uh, he's coming to the plate, and do you remember what Casey does with the first two pitches? Casey doesn't even put his bat on up to hit the ball. Casey just holds the bat down, strike one, strike two. The fans are going crazy. Kill the up, kill the up. You know they're mad about it. Till Casey raises his hand, calms the crowd, then puts the bat to his shoulder. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence, his bat upon the plate. 
<coughs> excuse me, and now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go, and now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. And you turn the page, and the poem turns and reflects, oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there's no joy in Mudville. Why? Mighty Casey has struck out. Oh, there's joy somewhere. I mean, somewhere people are Kids are playing and happy and the band plays, but not in Mudville because Mighty Casey has struck out. Uh, It's there in that line. There's no joy in Mudville that that we'll often use and say, won't we, when, when things don't go the way we want, when something bad happens, when what we hoped would happen doesn't, or what we hoped would never happen happens when, when the fallenness of this world I mean, honestly, it comes on your porch and then it comes through your front door. We might say, what? There's no joy in Mudville. Now, I take us to the poem because it's, it's a light, humorous look, but I think it's also a sobering reminder of how many of us view joy. How we define joy. Uh, That is, joy rises and falls based upon circumstances and what happens. I mean, what would, what would have happened had Casey hit the ball? But Casey didn't hit the ball. And therefore, you know, that, that's probably a very good definition of happiness because happiness depends on what happens, per se, but it doesn't get close to biblical joy. And I would love to say to you that having you know, studied the Bible for years, having been a Christian for some time, having, having devotions and knowing God's Word in some, some measure, that I don't fall into the happiness rut. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, my neck is sore from the roller coaster ride of the last two weeks of, oh, okay, good. Oh, now this. My stomach in knots based upon a comment or a comment I didn't hear or a comment I heard on an event that happened. What I'm saying is that I, I personally have a hard time separating my joy from Casey's bat. And my guess is that a lot of us do. It's, it's natural that we do that. Here's the question I have. Do we find in Scripture a non-contingent joy? You see, a joy that's not contingent upon whatever you want to put in the blank. A, a, a non-contingent joy such that, you know, when Casey strikes out, and by the way, he strikes every time I read the book, he strikes out, and in your life, he strikes out a lot, but is there a non-contingent joy such that when he does, we could actually stand, I mean, we could actually stand in that place and say, my joy remains. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of John, the Gospel of John. We're going to go to an Advent passage, John chapter 1. We're in the Advent season, the season of arrival, anticipating the Lord's arrival. John 1 is a great Advent passage, but we don't go there a ton, y'all, because as I'm going to read it, it's the cosmic Advent. It's the out there Advent that we see, the coming of the Lord. And I'm going to focus upon verses 14 through 18, but I'm going to have to grab the first first 
five verses to, to get us into the context. But today we're lighting what, we, what is the candle of joy, having lit in the candle of hope, the candle of love. Next week, Eric will light the candle of peace. Of course, on Christmas Eve, we'll have the Christ candle. But we, we light the candle of joy. And I want to suggest that just like hope and love, it's not a worldly hope we have. Not cross your fingers, I hope. It's not a worldly love. It's based on our feelings. It's the commitment of the will for the good of another. It's not a worldly joy. We're talking about a supernatural, otherworldly joy. Follow along in your Bibles, God's word to you and to me on this Lord's Day. I'm going to take verses 1 through 5 first, and then we'll camp in 14, uh, 14 through 18. I think John gives us a reason for non-contingent joy. Now, when I read this, it's going to take a little work to get there, so stick with me. Let's begin with the verse, first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice we go to a pronoun now. It's not just the Word. This Word is a, is a person. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life... And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Men and women, don't don't ever let anyone, they can say it, but don't ever believe someone when they say, you know, the Bible never really says Jesus was God. Oh, my goodness, you can't read this in English and, and miss that, okay, this, the word in the beginning, that takes us to Genesis. God spoke all things into being, but wait a minute, it's saying this word, who's a he, he spoke it all into being. God is the author of life, and it's saying this word that's a he, that's life. You know, it, it, there's no way you can miss this, and if you even think you can, then we go to verse 14. Go there. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the God man. And we saw his glory, glory as of, only, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, are you sure he's talking about Jesus? Well, John testified about him. Who did John speak of? Jesus. And cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through who? He's talking about Jesus, who is God. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. What an interesting phrase. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Who's that? It's Jesus. He, Jesus, has explained him, God, the Father. You see, in the incarnation, John, he doesn't start in the manger, does he? He starts in eternity. (laughs) Jesus, fully God, with the Father, before time as we understand it. Now, again, I'm going to look at verses 14 to eight through, through 18. But what, what, what John says in the first five and those next verses is that non-contingent joy is rooted, ground, and sourced in the incarnation. That's what he says. Non-contingent joy is rooted, ground, and sourced in the incarnation. Incarnation is not a word in our Bibles, y'all. It's a Latin word. It means enfleshed. And, and it's that word that we use to describe that, that God himself and the, the Son, fully God, 
put on human flesh, took on human flesh. It's a mystery. It's a great mystery, but the implications are huge. It's that God became a, a man and lost none of his godness, nor was his godness commingled with his humanity. No, he's fully man, and yet none of his humanness commingled with his godness, such that Jesus, the God-man, is fully God and fully man in one person. One implication, massive. Think about this. Our, the, the atonement, the payment for our sin. Sin is against an infinite God. Therefore, it, it, it requires an infinite price to be satisfied. Who but God can pay an infinite penalty. Problem. Man's the one who sinned against God. So it's got to be a man who pays the penalty for that sin. We, have a, we don't have a problem because we have Jesus. Fully God, fully man. The incarnation. Now, John's going to show us three things about the incarnation that, uh, that secures our joy. I'm going to outline those in a moment. But some of you, I actually hope, are thinking, Lloyd, these verses don't say anything about joy. I mean, we just read them. They don't, they don't say, it doesn't say joy. I think it says everything about joy. This is the part I was telling you earlier. We're going to have to do a little work to get there, but it's biblical work. Let's start here. What John is saying in these verses, can, can we agree, and I'm seriously asking you this question, can we agree that John says in these verses, God has come to man? Nod with me. It's not a trick question. I just want us to be in, in line that, yeah, we can say that without a doubt. And therefore, we know that we didn't go to God. God came to man. Therefore, we can say, implication, if God came to man, we can all say we are not alone, can't we? Know that God has come. I would summarize you know, the verses that we read with this very familiar phrase, God is with us. Would you agree that's what John said? I'm, I believe he did. Would you agree that's what he says, God is with us? If you think about the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew recorded the, the incarnation, the birth, he said it this way, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means, you tell me what it means. It means God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, God's with us. What does God with us have to do with joy? I'm going to let the psalmist answer this for us. If you have your Bibles, flip over from the Gospel of John to Psalm 16. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I want to grab a few verses that answer this question. Psalm 16, the psalmist is singing, writing these lyrics, a psalm of David. Look at verse 5. He said, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. There's that sense of witness. So the Lord's what I got. Uh, you support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. You get this witness? The Lord's with me. I've set the Lord before me. He's with me. Because he's where? At my right hand. Now notice the benefits of God's presence. 
I will not be shaken. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my glory, here it comes, rejoices in what? God's at my right hand. God's with me. I will not be shaken. My flesh will also dwell securely. Messianic phrase, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Then verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. If we're going to follow Michael's maxim, you remember? Don't let the world teach you theology, and we must. Then we are going to discard any notion of joy that's tied to Casey's bat. So we'll say joy is not the absence of problems. It's not getting what you want. It's not your struggle resolved. It's not the pain removed. It's not everything turning out the way you wish it would turn out. It's not being pain-free. It's not the removal of suffering. It's not the remission of the cancer. It's not the marriage being saved. It's not the tragedy avoided. It's not that your kids turn out great. It's not, joy is not that my reputation remains intact, that we defend against a lawsuit. It, joy, is not a fi- joy is not financial security. Joy is not a conservative in the White House. Joy is not ISIS defeated. It's none of those things. Joy is not contingent on anything happening or not happening. Joy is the fruit of trusting what's already happened. The Bible teaches this core principle, and this is real, not rocket science, it's simple, but it's, it's to say the presence of God is the presence of joy. And the incarnation, you see, the incarnation is the definitive act of God whereby he says, I'm with you. And what does Jesus say to us? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Nothing I listed, nothing I listed down through there can change, diminish, dilute anything to the incarnation. Can't touch it. Biblical joy is not a roller coaster that rises and falls. It is, I'm going to describe it this way, an anchor. It's an anchor that holds when the sea's relatively calm and when the sea is raging, you see. Biblical joy will hold. Now, I'm going to point out three things in the text. Go back to John now. We've got to go back to John chapter 1. I'm going to point out three things that John touches upon. And I'm going to call them, you know, th- three things, I'll say it this way, that secure our Joy, okay? The first one's a little repetitive. I'm going to give you some phrases that I hope can stick with us a little bit. The first would be this, the presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus. That's verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that word dwelt, it's, it's, it's literally, and this is in your margins, you guys can see this, it's the word tabernacled. It's the word pitched a tent. And when we're studying our Bibles, we always want to say, well, what did the original audience hear and see when, he's, when they're reading this as we move toward application interpretation? Well, when they read tabernacled, where do you think their minds went in terms of redemptive history? What would they think about when they saw that word tabernacled? Where would they go? You'd go back to the Old Testament. You'd go back to Moses. You'd go back to the, go back to the people in, in the wilderness, key, in the wilderness where the 
tabernacle was built. Uh, according to God's design, this is where God met with them. This is where God's glory dwelt. This is where Moses went to hear from God. And by the way, it was in the center of this massive, you know, millions of persons camps. Very centers, the tabernacle, so that any you know, Israelite could get up one day and kind of stand up, get on top of something, look down and go, God's with us. <laughs> they could look at it. God's with us. And you see, God's presence brought them through the wilderness to the promised land. Now, I want you to keep in mind, we don't just think back that they were in the wilderness and boy, that's where they took the tabernacle. But I want to remind us, and I think the phrase reminds us, y'all, this, where we live today, is the wilderness. This is not the promised land. We're not there yet. But God's with us, you see, just as he was with them, and he will bring us through the wilderness. He will take us to the Jordan. We'll cross the Jordan, and one day we will be in the promised land forever. But in the meantime, Jesus has come, first advent, and Jesus says, I'm coming again. And in between, we live in this wilderness and you know what happens in the wilderness we get rocks in our shoes and we trip we fall and we get bug bitten there's snakes it's hot we're thirsty and dust gets in our eyes but god's with us and our joy in the wilderness is secure the presence of jesus secures our Joy. The second phrase I want to give you, I'm giving you these P words, you know, to help you remember. The, pre the presence of Jesus would be next, the provision of Jesus. The provision of Jesus. Look again in your Bibles, this time at verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Y'all, there's a limit. There's a limit to anything earthly you would go to to try and secure your joy. And, and this is not in hyperbole. If you had all the money in the world, you couldn't secure your joy. You couldn't keep bad things from coming in and disrupting your happiness joy, you see. If you passed laws, you can't pass enough laws. You can't build enough walls to keep it all out. But Jesus, it says we, we've received from him, you see, out of his fullness Grace upon grace. It's, it's a limitless supply of grace upon grace. Notice it says we receive it. It's not something we earn. We know that. You can't, you can't, uh, you know, you can't earn uh, joy. You can't, you can't figure out a way to get it and keep it. It's received. It's given. Grace upon grace. When you, when you have those, when you realize it's received and it's bottomless, you can see it's of his, is there any limit to what, got, to what we receive in Christ? Like, do we ever get to the bottom of what we receive in Christ? No, we don't. It's infinite grace upon grace that we receive. And if it's something we receive and it's limitless, then here's the thing I want to tell you. We don't have to hold on to joy. You just receive joy. You've ever had those moments, I've done this, where, where, where I, I really think, you know, you have this moment of joy, this epiphany of joy. And, and I'll, when I have that epiphany of joy, sometimes I'll go, oh my gosh, that's awesome. What did I do to get that? Okay, 
I need to do that again. I'm going to keep that. <laughs> I'm going to hold that joy. No, 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 no. You don't hold. You don't. You don't hold joy. Quite frankly, you just receive it because it's grace upon grace, which gives us some indication of the the joy, the grace you need in this moment. Like some of you are in a place in life, you need you need God's grace. Well, God gives you that grace. You just hold your hand. You just receive it, but you don't try and hold it because you know what you're going to need tomorrow a different measure of grace, more grace. And so you just, you just receive it and you just enjoy it. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, it's grace upon grace. So in every need, think about grace, God's favor toward us, his favor toward you, his goodness toward you, it'll, it'll come. You just receive it, but you don't have to squeeze it. And you don't have to try and hold on to yesterday's because he'll give you what you need today. It's of his fullness, you see, of his limitless supply, grace Upon grace. So, what secures our, our joy? The presence of Jesus tabernacled among us. The, the provision of Jesus. And then, this last little phrase, I'm going to say the revelation of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus. I'm going to take this from verse 18. Look at it with me. It says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Uh, that word uh, explained is the Greek word exeyeome. Exeyeome. It's, it, you know, go English on me. That's where I'm better. It's, it's, it's the word we get exegete. Exegete. You know what exegete means? Exegete means to make known. Exegete means to explain, to bring the fullness of. When we talk about how we study our Bibles or teach our Bibles, we say we exegete the text. Everybody kind of, kind of familiar with that phrase? That means what we do is we go to the text and we go, this is the text, but oh my, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. And we bring the fullness of the text. We exegete the text itself. This is saying that Jesus exegetes the Father. And if Jesus exegetes the Father, it is the fullest, clearest, most perfect explanation and revelation, you see, of the Father himself. So the more clearly we see Jesus, the the, the fuller we see Jesus, you see, then we see the Father more clear and fuller. Well, you say, well, what does seeing God, seeing the Father, have to do with with joy? Uh, Don't turn there. I want to tell you a little story over in Exodus 33. Some of you will remember this. It's a remarkable conversation between Moses and and God. Moses has come off the mountain, and uh, he's got the Ten Commandments, and what had they done? They had had made this golden calf. You know, it's crazy. And uh, I think about Moses as a man. And, and or, or, you know, as a leader, you think, oh, my gosh, if there was ever a moment when he would go, this ain't going to happen. This is not going to work. We are not getting out of here. I go away for a while. I come back. And this is what, you know, I, and I think Moses is certainly feeling some of that, even as he has this conversation with God. And, and God's response to Moses in that moment, verse 14, chapter 33, God says, my presence will go with you and give you rest. Think about that. They're rebelling against you, God. They're doing my presence. What are we talking about now? We're talking about God's presence in John. You know, I, no, I, need, I need more than that, God. I need, we need, we need, I need you to fight. I need your angels to go before me. I need you to show fireworks. I need you to, my presence will go before you 
and give you rest. Now, Moses, and I don't think this is wrong at all, Moses asked for more. Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Let me, let me see you. Just let me see you. How many of us, don't raise your hand, I'll raise mine because I have. How many times have I been in places and there's just this part of me goes, God, if you'll just show me, if I could just see, if I could just see you, then... God's response to Moses, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Remember the story? Remember what happens next? So, so God puts Moses in, there's a cliff and he's a little carved out spot in the cliff and God puts him in the cleft of the cliff there and, and it says God put his hand over Moses. By the way, these are anthropomorphisms. It's when we describe God as having a hand and a back. He doesn't have a hand. He doesn't have a back. God is spirit, but he describes him this way, so we kind of know what, what's happening, what he's like. Puts his hand over Moses. His glory passes by. and He doesn't remove his hand, does he, until he's passed by, and Moses just catches a glimpse, right, of his backside. I think we can say this, that Jesus is the answer to Moses' prayer. Show me your glory, Jesus. I want to see you, Jesus. Jesus is the answer to the prayer that Moses prayed. And when we see, y'all, this is the Bible tells us, when we see Jesus... We're seeing God. Problem. No one can see God and live. It's, I want you to think about this. How is it we can see God and live? Because of what Jesus has done. <laughs> he paid the penalty for our sin. He was buried and raised again. And we're clothed now in whose righteousness? In Jesus. When we see Jesus, y'all, we see the Father. Well, okay, okay, well, but what does seeing the Father have to do with joy? There's no greater joy than to see God and live. Name it. You tell me there's one better. I mean it. There's not. It's what the whole Bible's about, y'all. The whole Bible's about that we would be with God and see God and live, you see. There's no greater joy. And because of what Christ has done, my goodness, you know, we see Jesus. We see Jesus. We see the Father and we live. I, I, I didn't think of this last week, but someone said something to me in Brentwood, and, and it was so, I thought, yeah, that is so, that, help, that helps me even go further or clearer. But I want you to think about this. Why, why am I, and, and why does the Bible itself make such a big deal of God's presence and, and what it means? And that it's, quite frankly, I'm offering this this morning. I'm saying to you that his presence is everything. I'm, I'm just, it, I, all my cards are on it. All the chips are on that, the presence of God. Why would, why would we do that? Why, would the, why does the Bible do that? 
Because to be separated from God is hell. There's no, that's the antithesis, you see. That's the worst. Because His presence is everything. That's life. That's heaven. That's joy. Three anchors of our joy. The presence of Christ, God is with us. The provision of Christ, it's fu- His fullness that is grace upon grace and the revelation of Christ that seeing Jesus, we see God and live. In 1906... Uh, Grantland Rice wrote a sequel to Casey at the Bat. <laughs> it's kind of like, I got I to gotta think, you know, it's un-American to lose that game. You know, we got to write another book. We, we got to get this thing won. You know, we can't, can't stand it that he, he did that. So Grantland Rice writes a book called Casey's Revenge. Uh, this is going to shock you. But in this poem, Casey's team is down three runs in the bottom of the ninth. But then the bases get loaded. And guess who comes to bat? Of course, Casey. And guess what Casey does when he comes to bat on the first two pitches? Strike one, strike two. But then Casey raises his bat. You are not going to believe this. He hits a home run. He hits it so far they never find the ball. There you go. Now, in a nod to the original, Rice pins this stanza. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, dark clouds may hide the sun, and somewhere bands no longer play and children have no fun, and somewhere over blighted lives there hangs a heavy pall. But Mudville hearts are happy now, for Casey hit the ball. Oh, boy, happiness, right? Yeah, when Casey hits the ball. And when he doesn't, no joy in Mudville. John's invitation, the hall of Scripture, the gospel itself, of course, is to throw away the bat. Forget Casey. And remember the incarnation. God is with us. The presence of Christ. Christ's provision, grace upon grace, is without limit. And Christ himself reveals the Father fully. Y'all, this is the anchor of our joy. And this anchor will always hold. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is a, a gift to be reminded in these days that there is an anchor to our joy that holds and does not move and is not contingent. It is non-contingent. It is rooted in the historical reality that you took on human flesh. You bore the penalty for our sin. You lived the life we couldn't live. You died and rose again. And in you, in you and you alone, our joy is secure. Would you help us to remind each other of these things? Even as we walk out these doors and the events of this week and this day crash upon us. May we stand mindful of your first advent and longing, longing for your second, knowing as sure as you came the first time, you will come again. And even with rocks in our shoes and dust in our eyes, may your presence be joy, joy, joy.
Christ's name. Amen. Let me say to us that when, when the joy of the gospel and the joy of Christ is ours, and uh, I mean embodied in us, and we, we experience that the fruit of the Spirit in that, our joy does not remain our own. It overflows. Our joy is contagious. Our joy flows from our life to others. And this, truly, is at the center of global Christmas for us. That our joy in the gospel, you see, we, we stand in that joy, but we go, this can't be held. It must be given and extended in this community, in this state, in this country, but beyond to the four corners of the globe. And that's what we do now. And in coming weeks, as you bring a global offering, it's an, ex- it's an extension, is it not, of the joy that we have in Christ. And we stand with our brothers and sisters across the world in that same joy. We offer it. <laughs>